morning, everybody. This is John Barrows, Make It Happen Monday. Hopefully everybody's doing all right today. I am fired up for today's podcast because I'm here with actually a good friend of mine, Steve Richards. Steve, how are you, my friend? Hey, John, how you doing? I'm doing great. So, Steve, uh, to give everybody a little context here, Steve and I go back quite a, How many years have we been uh, uh, doing battle here, Steve? For was it I think we were competitors, you know, for about 15 years, right? <laughs> I think so, right? So, because I because I was at Basho for a while, and then split off and did Kensei and and, uh, and then Jay Barrows. But you, um, when did you start Voresight? So we started Voresight as an outsourced appointment setting business in 2005. Yeah. And then quickly thereafter, we started having people say, "Teach us all the best practices of outbound sales prospecting, especially enterprise outbound sales prospecting." And then I didn't know who you were from Adam, but all of a sudden I started hearing about you in the marketplace that that was the origin yeah and then it's like at first we were like oh shit we kept going head to head and then eventually we just started hanging out and seeing each other we we're like ah shit we're cool right <laughs> so um and then and then you went off and you split off um and you started executive why don't you just because i think this leads to our conversation we're going to be talking about training because we're both deeply in, engaged in this in this industry but talk to me a little bit about you know exec vision itself and why you decided to to split from Boresight and start exec vision with what you're doing right now yeah, actually, interestingly, Voresight uh, and ExecVision are still one in the same um, company. Yeah. But well, what happened with the with this with the sales training is is I was out there. I, I mean, I I think you and I are on pretty similar paths. I was out there just absolutely killing myself, delivering sales prospecting training. Sometimes I'd win, and sometimes you'd win. Right, the other half of the time you were out there, maybe more seventy percent. But what happened is it wouldn't stick. And we see this so often because of something called the forgetting curve. And I, I had an opportunity to learn a little bit about the neuroscience of how adults learn and, and our brains are actually wired to purge information. So later on, I'd say about a third of the time it would stick when they had strong management teams and they really reinforced it and they adopted it. And I'd go in there a year later and you'd hear all the lingo, all the language being used. Yep. Uh, these terms like three by three research, common challenges, shared truths, overtime questions, verbal judo, all this, all this language that was the program. And then two thirds of the time, nobody did a damn thing different. And, and you, you'd ask a simple question like, well, what's your common challenge? And they go, huh? And it's like, well, why did I even bother? So, so what I did at that point is, is went off and like, you know, like the genius that I was, I bought a tech company. That's <laughs> been a fun adventure. Uh, but we did just get some a big round of funding, and and we've got a lot of happy. We've got about a, a a lot of happy clients out there, customers out there. So it's going well. But anyway, you and I diverged, you know, because I I looked at at the problem and said there's really no way you can solve this without the actual recording of what's happening day in and day out. So Exec Vision is a conversation intelligence platform created for human behavior change. I went in on that because I saw it working in our business, and then at the same time, you went in on the bite-sized, just-in-time learning movement. And, you know, actually, you tell me about that, because I'm, I'm curious to hear when we kind of when our paths diverged, why you went that direction. Yeah, and I, I kind of saw the same thing, right? I mean, one of the things that, gra- would, that, that uh, why I gravitated towards this training when I took it in the first place was because it was, it wasn't this huge process, because I had, I remember when I was at my first startup, <clears throat> You know, we I, we were saying this before we got on here, like, you know, we had no money, right? So, so I was look and I was 25, so I had no idea what I was doing. So I was taking every training. I was sailing, Miller, Hyman, Taz, all that stuff. And it was funny because at that age and and being as uneducated as I was and inexperienced as I was, I I, I kind of cons- I thought that one of those methodologies was the answer, 
right? Like, well, Miller Hyman, they built a business out of this. So they, they must know that, you know, let me follow their process. And I remember following their full process, same thing with Sandler and just being like, okay, some of this stuff's cool, but a lot of this stuff is not relevant or doesn't work for me or whatever it was. And so I started taking pieces of the different trainings and to, to compile my own. And then when I came across Basho, the reason I loved it so much is because it was so tactical. And it's, and to your point, it was the only training that stuck for me because I was, because it was easy to do. I could do it immediately. It drove immediate results. And, and I, I saw myself actually using it, not just 30 days after the training, but literally years after the training. And so as I've evolved this training and noticed just in, in general, where we're going as a society, I mean, our attention spans are getting, you know, absolutely destroyed. The iPhone has pretty much killed everybody's uh, focus and all that stuff. So everything <laughs> is, everything is bite-sized stuff. And, and, and I just look at my own behavior, you know, if, if something is, you know, we joke about, you know, two or three scrolls on an iPhone type of scenario. If I'm reading an article and I scroll down one or two times, I, I tap the screen and I look half, I'm like, where is the bars? I'm like, am I already halfway through this? Cause if I'm not, I'm moving on to something else. And so this, and, and also when it leads to our conversation is you notice that you do a training and I, I do want to get into that neuroscience that you said, the forgetful curve, what'd you, what'd you call it? Yeah. The forgetting curve. Yeah. Keep yeah. going. Yeah. Because, because that's what happens, right? Training is typically an event where you come in, somebody like you or me comes in, gets everybody all fucking fired up. Right. And, and you see, and, and there's that, and there's, there's a, there is a lot of value to that. I will say of just giving the team a kick in the ass. Right. But then you come back two or three months later and I, I wrote a post at the end of the year called 106030, right? Which, and I kind of freaked some people out because I was doing this big sales kickoff. This was midway through last year. And some kid raised their hand and they said, hey, John, you know, it's like 200 people. And he's like, hey, John, you know, he saw all the logos of all the tech companies. He's like, you, tra- you train all these tech companies, man, on, on the same shit. And you've been doing it for years. How do we differentiate? Like if everybody knows the same stuff, how do we differentiate? And how has your stuff mm-hmm. not been pretty much overused? And I said, 10, 60, 30. And he goes, well, what do you mean by that? I go, look, 10% of you in this room are going to take what I say, apply it and execute and, and run with it and, and crush it. 60% of you are going to do some things different because it's easy to implement and you'll, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's going to make a difference. And 30% of you ain't going to do shit different. So the reason I can train every tech company out there and still not get oversaturated is because literally only 10% of the people in every room that I train is going to execute what I tell them to do. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and everybody kind of sat there like, oh, holy shit. And I was like, so just be the 10%. Because I was effectively telling, you know, 180 people in the room that you're average and you're going to be average and you know it. There's 20, there's mm-hmm. 20, literally 20 people in this room that are going to excel and you all know it and I'm just calling it out. And so, so John, yeah. no, no, go ahead. Finish the thought. Yeah. No, I, cause so I, cause, cause that 10% and then that leads to that forgetfulness curve because people, and, and I'm really interested what you said there about the, our brains are wired to forget information. Right. So, so talk to me a little bit about that because I mean, do you agree that that 10, 60, 30 or something similar to that is, is effectively the, the, the scenario? Yes. A hundred, a hundred percent. Now, now, and that, let me, that 10, 60, 30, remember how I described, like, if you think about all the 200 companies I trained over the years, it wasn't as many as you. Of those, a third of them, actually, the whole sales organization got better because the managers pushed them through and pushed more people into that 10, 60, 30. And then I'd say about two thirds that fell into that 10, 60, 30 pattern to AT. 
But let's talk about why that 10-60-30 pattern holds. And it really goes back to what you said before. Oh, I, I did Taz, I did Miller-Hyman, I did blank, blank, blank. And none of it, none of it ultimately solved my problem. The salespeople are trying to make more money. It's pretty simple. Yeah. The salespeople, salespeople want to make more money and they want to get promoted into bigger and better jobs. That's it, if you're any good of a salesperson. Those are the reasons fundamentally you're doing it. You probably really enjoy the thrill of the, of the victory, you know, or you hate losing, one or the other. The reason that you grabbed on to you know, uh, the old Basho stuff is because you, you, just, you made a decision that you were gonna, that you were gonna, this is it for me. You know, this is my Shangri-La. This is my Nirvana. I am going to, I'm I'm gonna make myself a master at this. And when you made that decision for yourself, unconsciously what's happening in your brain is you are shutting off your own forgetting curve. So, so in terms of the science, our brains are wired to purge information. It works just like a computer. You've got, in the computer, you've got RAM, you've got short-term memory, you've got your hard drive, you've got your long-term memory. Our brains are effectively the same. And what happens is the, the process in terms of how this actually plays out is, is when you're sleeping, unconsciously, you don't even get a choice. Your brain is either writing information in your brain for, in your long-term memory, usually a small percentage, and it's, it's making decisions based on what's going to keep me alive, yeah. essentially, on what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And this is the reason why if you go to, and I'll ask you the question, can you remember a deal that you lost back in the day when you were selling, or heck, maybe even recently, that it really stung. It was a real, real hard one. You would work your ass off and you lost it and you got, and you, oh, do you remember that? Oh, I, I remember plenty of oh. them. Yes. <laughs> yep. I've got about five in my career and each one of them teaches me a different lesson. Um, actually, one, I'll, I'll give you a funny one. At one point, I lost uh, Rosanna Stone, one of our old sales training clients to, um, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Costigan in North Carolina. Oh, wow. And, and, and I busted my ass for this, John. Like I worked my ass off for this thing. And when it was all said and done, one of the managers called me on the phone and said, do you know that, that the new chief revenue officer is in the same country club with John Costigan and their best friends? And I was like, what? I had no, there was no way I was ever going to win that. And then I went on LinkedIn and I looked up and I looked up uh, uh, how I was connected. And guess who it was? John Costigan. I go, what did I do? How come I didn't go on LinkedIn and see this in advance? I wasted all these calories. So anyway, going back to the point. So the reason in terms of like a brain science, neurobiology, the reason that you did that is you made that decision. Your brain decided I'm going to stay alive if I master Bashos. And oh, by the way, you built a whole business off of it. But the vast majority of, of reps don't make that decision. And the vast majority of organizations don't overcome the forgetting curve through the repetition. It's the consistency and execution and the repetition over a period of time. That's the key. So every time I talk to sales leaders, I actually just talked to a, 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 a brand new minted uh, chief commercial officer at a, you know, a big company with lots of reps on the phone. And I, I, what, what's your biggest challenge? What's your biggest challenge? It always comes back to consistency. We've got some people who are doing some things well and other people who are not doing things well. And why? Because of the forgetting curve, because your brain purges that information. So we have to, if you're going to fundamentally change rep behavior, and I'm not talking about, you know, oh, we, we tried a couple of the, of the methods you know, from that Jay Barrows teaches and, and they're working and we've adopted those and all the rest of it sort of went away. But if you're fundamentally going to change the rep behavior so that you can actually improve conversion rates and close more sales and get more revenue, you gotta, you gotta have repetition over time. There's no way to do it without it. So, so a couple of things. Yeah. And uh, how many kids do you have these days? <laughs> <laughs> 
four, ages four. three, five, seven, and nine. Yeah, man, yeah. you're a glutton for punishment. I love it. Um, but so obviously, because <laughs> what you bring up there is, it, um, you, you you must have seen Inside Out, right? The movie. Oh yeah. Right, you know when you know the long term memory when they when um, uh, Bobo or whatever the clown is it goes down and gets forgotten. Right, that's the visual that I have when you're because uh, when you're purging the information, right? Because you only have so much room for those core memories and those big losses that you just talked about. So all I could think about was you're talking about is inside out and those little balls going in and out of the brain. But um, it's a it's a it's actually it's actually a really freaking good visual that goes along with it beautifully. You know, and, and that's, but, 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 but this is the thing. How many sales leaders that you work with know this? All of them, all of them. I mean, they, they, well, they all know that, that they need to do it. They, but they don't do it. And that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to figure out is why, well, let's talk about reps and managers. Okay. So, so reps. What is the driver? So you said, yeah, for me, I, I immediately connected with the Basho stuff and I said, I'm going to use this and I'm going to run with it. That 10%, if you will. Why do, if the driver is, when you said it's pretty simple, right? We're trying to make money as sales reps. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't, why isn't there that commitment? Why isn't, why don't more than 10% of reps click and and say I'm, I'm whether it's my stuff your stuff anybody's stuff but why don't they they click into that gear of i'm taking this and i'm running with this is there i mean and, and the, they keep that forgetful curve in there because is it they, they just don't really give a shit or they're just going through the motions or there's something different about that 10 percent than everybody else like have you found anything that is mm-hmm. like help me understand that because that's what i try yeah to i i I'll quote Al Pacino in Son of a Woman. I think it's because they think it's just too hard. I think everyone has well intentions and everyone nods at the end of the training program and says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pull out that binder. I'm going to revisit this material. I'm going to go online to Jay Barrow's content. I'm going to, I'm going to make this part of my game. And if, if there's not an organizational effort with leadership behind it, those well intentions fall by the wayside. It's, it's, it's really the same question of like, okay, so I run, every morning. I run six to seven mornings a week. And if I don't run, I feel kind of weird at this point. It's just strange. This is what I do. I don't run far. I don't run fast. I run seven and a half miles, but not seven. Sorry. I run three and a half miles at about a seven and a half or eight minute clip. Not very fast. So anyway, I go out on the, on the running trail, you know, it's new year's now and people might be listening to this afterwards, but it's, it's the beginning of January when we're talking, I see all these freaking people out there and, and I laugh. Yeah. Because right now it's a pain in the ass. It's like the trail is crowded. My same little three and a half mile loop I do almost every day, and it will be completely abandoned. So if you and so so to answer the question of of, of why they don't do it, because most people don't have the the stick to itiveness. Maybe they're not boneheaded enough, you know, to fight through all of this. Um, what I found that seems to be working, and and this is something that you know, again, I know a lot of the people listening to this are individual contributors or reps. And you might be saying, well, oh shit, now that I know my own neuroscience, my own neurobiology, how do I overcome the forgetting curve? Well, one thing you can do is what they did at CrossFit, or there's another fitness thing called Orange Theory. So what they're doing there is they're creating a, a, a club. I, I almost think of it as being a tribe or a cult. Cult, on yeah. some level, it's almost a cult. Oh, yeah. How around. do you know CrossFit? Because they tell you they're in CrossFit, right? So <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And, but, but this is the thing. There's a secret language. 
There's like a language of CrossFit. There's a language of Orange Theory, and they all do it together. And when someone thinks that they're going to drop out or when someone thinks that, that something is too hard, they all rally around each other and they pull for each other. And of course, you have the leadership of the, you know, of the person who's running that, that group, you know, they're probably the gym owner. Yeah. You see what I mean? So it, it's really hard as human beings to, to fight through the forgetting curve and then master something new, unless we're either a just really, really driven personally, and we can handle it ourselves or B we're surrounded by a, a support system and leadership uh, that we're all going to do this together. We're in the canoe rowing the boat at the same time in the same direction. You see what I mean? I, I totally see it, it. You know, I was saying earlier, uh, another conversation I was having recently, like everybody sees sales as an individual sport, but it's totally a team sport in every way. If you really want to win, right? Um, I mean, yeah, you have to hit your numbers, but if you're not leveraging the people around you, your team, your resources and all that other stuff, you're only going to get so far. And, and, and go ahead. Well, I was going to say, this is, this is the reason why I'll say something kind of controversial. There are a lot of companies out there right now that are going after, um, I'll call them script prompters, uh, sort of, you know, real time reminders of reps of, of what they should or should not be doing. And, and I, I think it's an interesting field. I think it's something that we should all look at. I think it's something we, everybody needs to test. What I've seen is anytime, you know, I don't know about you, John, but in your career, if you've had someone on, on a sales call with you and they tap you on the shoulder to say something to you, or they write something on the whiteboard when you're in the middle of the call, how easy is it for you to absorb that information and internalize it? It fucks me all up. Like I, as soon as somebody does that, I'm like, because uh, now I've lost my train of thought, and I'm trying to think about how to do that. Like it's never, it never works. I, I, and we've, I've, I've had an opportunity to go to, you know, I know this is a sales podcast, but I've had an opportunity to go and spend some time with our cousins in call centers. Yep. Um, and it's kind of a dirty word in sales, right? But at the same time, if you look at call centers, they've tried that whole script prompter thing. For the most part, they've rejected it because it makes just makes people sound like weird parrots and robots. Totally. It's bizarre, right? Um, but what, they, what they've done a really good job of, and I think it's something that we can all borrow from, is they've done a good job of defining the behaviors associated with the good performance yeah. and separating. Because let's face it, a lot of salespeople who are like, you know, quota crushers or whatever, if you actually saw what they did, a lot of them get a lot of really, really good inbound leads. And don't get me wrong, they're, they're fine. But there's nothing that they're doing behavior-wise that's just so great. They're, in some cases, order-taker salespeople. I mean, just realistically, that's what happens. And, they, and they're in the right place at the right time. They're a super hot tech company at the right time. And wham, you know, like lots of inbound demand and, and they, get a, they, they get a big check. But fundamentally, the people who are going to be the longest-term most successful are the ones that really take their craft seriously. So if you if you boil down and distill like all of the of the stuff that we should be doing in our sales calls, our various sales calls, really what what I find with most businesses, and this is what I saw in the call center world, is it comes down to like seven to ten key behaviors. And if 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 the reps can consistently execute those seven to ten key behaviors, and oh by the way, you should always start this exercise. So here's a concrete takeaway if you're listening, with does the rep blank right and and it and it should be something that's objective it should be something that's um you know very clear you know uh, uh does the rep lead the call with a why you why now yeah. the there you go and like that right yeah yeah yep. with a reason for the call you know in parentheses why you why now yep. and it's really easy like like that's so objective that's so black and white that is so like i can i can have someone in the philippines or india or anywhere around the world who basically doesn't know your business and has a tiny tutorial on what that means 
And, and then all of a sudden, boom, like I can hear if it's happening or not. It did, that behavior did or did not happen in the call. It's simple. And if we know that if the behavior happens in the call, that our probability dictates that when that behavior is present in the call, that we convert more of those, maybe it's two times more, three times more, five times more, whatever, we win, right? We're optimized. We're trying to find a point of sales optimization. And the only way to do that is by understanding what are those behaviors that are relevant. Once we know the behaviors, then we have to come up with a way of beating the forgetting curve. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious as you're hearing this, because I don't think you've ever heard this kind of uh-huh. new diatribe I've got here. Like, I, I love to hear how you see the how you see the bite-sized learning play into this because I think it plays a critical role. Yeah, I think it's 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 the right time at the right place, right? Because I think the the forgetful curve is 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 real, right? I mean, what's the stat that you know thirty days after like eighty four percent is lost or something like that? I, I don't know what it is, but yep. it's close, right? Yep, more or less. Yeah, it's it's all it's always between seventy five and ninety, but yeah, yep. yeah, and so. The idea there is you have to, that's why blended learning is the key, right? Like the on-site, just an on-site session is is just, you know, that's an event. And unless you're a kick-ass manager and can take that stuff and run with it and reinforce it and do all that other stuff, it is going to be what it is. Um, so that's why the, okay, do a little bit of on-site, do a little bit of online, but then give these snippets and 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 help people, to your point, try things. I think I think what too few companies do is they don't, conscious or too few reps and too few companies don't consciously try new things on a regular basis. So one of the things I, and here's something that I recommend every manager do. I used to do this with my team is we would pick something once a week, right? Cause we, again, we didn't have any money. So we, we became our own training organization and I would say, all right, guys, you know, Monday morning sales team meeting guys, what's the, um, uh, what's the challenge we're trying to address this week or what's something everybody's getting their ass kicked on. And they'd be like, you know what, John, we're getting, we're getting killed on the pricing objection. Okay, cool. Let's all light up Google type in best way to handle pricing objection, read a couple of blogs, whatever it is, pick an approach that we thought was cool, role play it a little bit to see how it rolled out. And then I would say, all right, everybody, no matter what you're doing this week, right, do whatever you want to do, but no matter what you're doing, when that thing comes up, when the pricing objection comes up, I want you all to use this, this approach. And then I want you to do, a, everybody kept a, a, a notepad next to their desk and they would just do a plus minus, right? It worked, it didn't work, it worked, it didn't work. And then I would collect those pieces of paper at the end of the week, add up all the numbers. And then the next team meeting, I would say, all right, everybody, we hit that pricing objection, you know, 50 times last week. We got 30 pluses and 20 minuses with the approach. Good job. What do we want to work on this week? And that bite size, like, let's just try this one thing, but let's all collectively work on it together so that we can see whether it's working or not and give you these snippets and nuggets of, of easy things to implement that whether they work or not actually wasn't the point. It was, we wanted to figure out whether they worked or not. Cause I don't think people know to your point of what does great look like until they figure yep. out until they test different approaches to, because what great looks like for you, Steve versus me, John, my personality is different than yours. You know, I'm I'm Boston kid in your face, fuck off, that type of scenario, right? Where you're just not, you're way nicer. I was a little more of a kinder and gentler kid from the Northwest corner in Connecticut. Yes, but yeah, no, you're, you're, you're exactly right. But here's why that worked. Here's why that worked for you when you were, you know, when you were managing sales teams. You focused on one thing. Mm-hmm. And I love this notion of, of the running of, of tests and experimentation. It's a lesson from Ken Krogh, uh, you know, the original founder of InsideSales.com. 
a mm-hmm. uh, great friend and mentor of mine, and, and he really instilled the value of running tests. Yep. You know, if you look at marketing, they run tests. If you That's look at call centers, like I mentioned before, they're running tests all the time. We're running, I think sales is doing a better job running tests within email, you know, yep. because of, of different uh, sales and sales engagement platforms that are out there right now. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, I think we do a shitty job at running tests and what we say, because what happens is a tape recorder goes off in your head. So th- this, is, this is what happens with the average rep. The average rep starts at a new job. They go through the company onboarding, you know, drink the Kool-Aid stuff, which generally lasts one week to one month, depending on the company, right? Yep. Yep. And, and they get certified. And at their, that they're doing all the things the right way. And then they get released into the wild. And then when they get them released into the wild, they end up sitting next to somebody. Or if they're a, you know, a work from home person, they end up kind of getting paired with someone or they just meet someone. And that someone or those, those someones have their own way of doing things. And generally, it's pretty different than what they learned in the classroom through their onboarding. Yep. And they adopt many of those habits. Now, in the, the, in the habit formation period, that follows when, for the most part, most reps just happen to adopt the habits of the people that they're, they're near, you know, in terms of proximity. Once those habits have been formed after, you know, three, four months, it's really freaking hard to break them. Yeah. Well, so, that's, that's what screwed up. Well, you so know what I mean, it's like that process of habit formation is where we need to, we need to intercept, we need to change the cue on the habit loop. And then, and we need to get people to, you know, run experiments to find what is actually optimized as opposed to, I just do this because the guy that I sit next to taught me that. So you bring up a a, a great point that I'm trying to figure out how to address, which is like, they go through boot camp, right? So, you know, let's talk about the pitch, right? The slide deck pitch. Look, I fundamentally Mm -hmm. believe that, that in boot camp, you should have to go through the slide deck pitch and, and, and I want to make sure like, like Morgan right now, right? Like when, when Morgan first started with, with me, he, I, I gave him my slide deck and I wanted to see, I need you to d- d- deliver the slide deck exactly the way I want you to deliver it because I need to know that you can have the timing and all that other stuff. Right. But then I told him, I go, but Morgan, okay, you're quote unquote certified to deliver because I feel comfortable. But if I come back to you three months later and you're still delivering it exactly this way and you haven't made it your own, I'm going to be pissed at you because you're, you're delivering my slide deck with my approach and my stories three months out. You have to have your stories. You have to have, you have to put your flavor to this. Okay. So it's the same thing with the slide deck uh, or the, the presentation deck for reps, right? They go get certified. They go through their boot camp. They get their fucking badge. Yay. But then they, they, they go out into the wild, as you say, and they just deliver it the exact same way because, and I think there's something about the neuroscience of this, they got their badge. And I'm, I'm, I actually really am frustrated with the whole badge thing about this because it gives us this little, and, and also those sales enablement tools that you talk about or those sales efficiency tools where it showed that they opened up the email or whatever it is because it gives this little endorphin rush of something like, hey, I got, I got, a, I got a, a badge for that or, oh, somebody opened up my email. So that, that feels good and it's a short-term win here. So that's what I'm searching. And so that's why reps go through these pitches and they're searching for the badge at the end of their pitch to the customer. But the customer isn't going to give them a fucking badge. The customer is looking, right? But the rep is searching for that badge. And so how do we, how do we as leadership, how do we as trainers get reps to get certified on the pitch, but then 
figure out their own style in a, in, in, and catch that groove, if you will, in the short term? Is it like, how do we do that? I, this is where I've got that very, very, very strong point of view. All right. And it's a two-part answer. Part number one, let's separate the science and the art of sales once and for all, because we don't want people reading scripts. And at the same time, you have to have some guidelines. Uh, yeah. You know, Mike Brooks, uh, he, he talks about, you, know, you don't see Hollywood actors going out there and winging it. But some of the best moments in, in Hollywood history are when Hollywood actors, you know, did, just did a little extra something like Mark, yeah. Mark Wahlberg and uh, Boogie Nights when he was just sort of looking at the camera. Right. Weird. Will Ferrell so, pretty much so, every time he does something dumb, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so now, so really what it comes down to for the science is define the seven to 10 key behaviors. This is, these are non-debatable. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, Closing the call with concrete mutual action plan that both parties agree to. And I don't know, how do you, how do you teach that with, at Barrows, at Jay Barrows? What, what do you guys? Get the fucking next step. Like <laughs> that one's like, <laughs> that one bothers the shit out of me because I'm like, if you get off the phone and don't have a defined next step, you failed as a fucking sales professional. So like, I, well, I hold on though. Hold on though. Hang on, John. Hang on. Hang on. Cause I, I listen to a lot of game tape from a lot of companies. Yeah. I would say that 70% of the time, this is me spitballing here. There aren't, there aren't any, there aren't any. I know. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay. So now, so like once, once, going back to the answer, once you have those seven to 10 key behaviors, like we don't deviate from those. And if, if, if we want to revisit those at any point in time and say like, does anyone have any argument on changing the fundamental science of what we're doing here? Speak now or forever hold your peace. We will consider anything. That's fine. We can have the software help us identify and surface what some of those scientific things are and the role of AI and all that. That's great. That's fine. But fundamentally, we all have to agree as an organization that these are the best practices for the science. Then you have the art, which is what you're trying to get Morgan to do. So that's part one. Know what the science is. Know what the key behaviors are. Does the rep blank? And then know what the art is. That's step one. Now, step two. Step two is, is actually probably the more interesting part of it, which is the process of human behavior change. And we told that story before about the, um, uh, you know, we'd, we'd focus on one thing for the week. Yeah. I do love the week. We find that, the, that a month works better for really getting the thing to stick. Everyone's yeah. different. Everyone learns different. Some of the reps will learn it faster. But if we keep it to maybe every two weeks or every month, it's more likely that it's really going to stick and we're going to master that you know, price objection, like you said before. So what you need to do there is you need to have a, I call it a coaching plan for lack of a better, you know, better terminology right now. Um, our friends in ambition call it, they call it uh, coaching. I think they call them coaching programs. Um, but everyone's got a different term for it, but there has to be a series or a sequence of events that happen over a defined period of time with defined participants to actually change the rep behavior on that thing. And I'll give you a real concrete example. I'm working with a company in Atlanta, big telecom company, and they're using the exec vision software platform, everything. And it's become very clear to everyone that these people are fundamentally selling on features and barely even benefits. I mean, really, they're just like feature selling. And they're almost like retail salespeople, where it's like people are coming to them looking for features and they sort of describe what the features are that they have and they see if there's an alignment and then they go for the close. Yep. Pretty straightforward sort of thing. But everyone agrees, like, we can't survive out there in a pretty commoditized market of telecom, of, you know, cloud VoIP, unless we evolve and unless we're able to have a conversation about the prospect's business. So fundamentally, how does the prospect with their business try to create value with their customers? 
You know what I mean? Like, so how are they going to communicate with their customers and all that kind of stuff? And it's simple. I mean, we're not even talking about identifying challenges or pain or anything like that. We're talking about like fundamentally just simply saying like, so John, um, I did a little research on your business. It seems like you, you communicate with your customers in these ways. Is that right? Yeah, it is. What are some ways you're thinking about building more value, creating more value with your customers so you make more money through business communication? What about things like texting? What about things like online meetings? What about things like blank? That conversation's not happening right now. So that's, you know what I mean? that's fine. How do we get the rep from point A to point B where they're not having a conversation about the prospect's business and getting them so they are having a conversation about their prospect's business? That's what takes time. You know, it'll probably take for most of those reps 30 days, some of them maybe more. And there has to be a consistent, like every, every maybe two or three days, an intervention that happens along the way. And then the, you, you need the reps to go from a state of unconscious incompetence where I love this. There's this matrix. I can share a, a blog that you guys can center on your community, but yeah. unconscious incompetence, the rep doesn't know why they suck. Yeah. I don't know why I suck. Yeah. Then you go to conscious incompetence. I know why I'm bad. Yeah. And then finally you go to conscious competence. I know why I'm good. Yeah. And unfortunately you got a lot of people who are, who are unconsciously competent. They don't know why they're good. We kind of forget about them because there's not a lot I can do. If you don't know why you're good and you, you can't really articulate it, like just well, keep hitting your quota. Those are the pure uh -huh. artists. Those are the pure artists. Those yeah. are the ones that are just like they, you know, I I actually contest that maybe five percent of our population in sales are the natural born sales professionals. And I mean that in the ones that just know how to relate to people, know how to ask questions, you know, that type of thing, know where to take the conversation. And I'm not one of them. You know, I gotta work my ass off in sales. Yep. But, you know, I contend yep. that you know, Jeff Hoffman, my mentor, he's one of them. You know what I mean? He's that guy where you so, watch him and you're like, holy shit, man. Like, fuck. But, but this is the deal. But this is the deal. Celebrate those people. Sure. Let them do their thing. But if you're trying to build a business by replicating those people, you're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, you'll fail. You'll fail. Like, can, can I ask you this? Can you teach genuine curiosity? No. Okay. I would say no. How do you get no. people close to it? Because, because, uh, I, because I think the, the thing that I've been struggling with is I'm a, I'm a genuinely curious. So this is why I've, I've never used scripts. I never go step by step as far as what questions I ask during a sales process or anything like that. Because I'm, I'm right. just, and you know, for instance, with Pam, this is why I love the podcast, right? Because the reason I, I do the podcast is because this is the way I learn is by bringing people like you on who I respect and, and who know more than me and asking you questions. And this is how I learn, right? Because I genuinely am, am curious about your answers and, and, and I do the same thing with customers. How do you get a rep to at least become curious? Uh, you hire for it as much as I hate to say it. And it's actually our number one hiring criteria, both for our Voresight business and our execution business is uh, intellectual curiosity. Um, it's also one of our core values. If you came into our office in Arlington, Virginia, you'll see painted on the wall, be curious. And oh, by the way, that wasn't me. I did not come up with that core value. Our people came up with that core value on their own. And I, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story here. I, I walk through our, our own, you know, break room slash ping pong room slash lunch room in, in my own business yesterday. Yeah. And I saw someone reading what appeared to be a trashy romance novel. <laughs> and I walked around the corner. And I saw a huge bookcase. I'm talking floor to ceiling, seven foot wide bookcase filled with the best business and sales books on the planet. 
and I'm I'm scratching my head. I'm scratching my head. Not not only that, but also business periodicals. I mean, all the stuff we have that yeah. you could use to improve yourself. Why the fuck would you read a trashy romance novel in front of all of your peers on your break? <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah I don't I, get it. And, I, but 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 that's a bad hire. I mean, like I I could have a conversation with that person to say, hey, you know, what do you want out of your career? Oh, I want to be a VP of sales. Great. How is reading this book going to get you there? I yeah. could have that conversation. It's going to go, I've had it. It's going to go in one ear or out the other. It's a bad hire. If you don't, you know, if, if you're, if you're not in our environment, in our, in our company here, if you're, if, if you don't want to go and grab one of those books, we, we screwed up. That's our fault as leaders. Like we shouldn't hire that person. Yeah. And I think that's, and I bring this to kids too, right? Like I, one of the things I always struggle with, with my daughter is like, how do you, how do you, you know, instill drive? How do you instill curiosity? Right. Like, and I, and I, it's hard, right? Because the nature nurture thing, how far is that? And, and I think by the time you get into the working world, if you haven't had those things instilled in you as a kid and you aren't genuinely curious or like to me, so your number one criteria is curiosity. Mine is drive. Like, Mm -hmm. like I remember my number two, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, because I remember a long time ago um, when I was at Thrive, my first company, we got to about 50 people and, uh, and it was, I was just getting frustrated because that 51st person that we hired just didn't have the drive and the passion that we did when we started the company. Right. And I remember Jack Welsh came to Boston and did one of his seminars and, you know, Jack just does a straight up Q and a, right. So there was about 800 people in this uh, uh, stadium. And, and I stood up and I asked, Hey, Jack, you know, you talk about drive and passion and all this other stuff and all, you know, and how important it is, you know, I'm having a hard time here. Cause as a business owner, you know, that you know, when we were 10 people, 20 people, everybody was just fucking fired and driven and all that other stuff. And then all of a sudden we got to like 50 people and that 51st person we hired just doesn't have. So I, so I asked him, like, how do you instill your drive and passion on somebody else? And he straight up looked at me and he gave me the same answer you did, which was, you're looking at it all wrong. He's like, you can't teach drive. You can't teach passion. You have to hire for it. And, yeah. and so I think for those people looking out, you know, out there listening to this, you know, if you're middle of the pack and you're looking to improve, you either got to figure out how to get yourself off that horse and like on that horse and, and get some you know, drive or, or you're, there's something missing there, right? You're, you either don't give a shit because you really are not at a company that, that you care about or, a pro, or selling a product or service that you care about or something's yeah. missing that, that you need to go find out because you'll never be, in my opinion here, you will never be truly successful unless you figure out how to be dr- like truly driven and also how to be genuinely curious in sales. I, I just, I can't, I can't think of anybody I know that is truly successful in business or in sales that don't have those two pieces. Uh, yeah, now you're in my head about my kids because I'm, I'm sitting here and going, yeah, and I really want to make sure they have that. And, and actually, I don't think it's your socioeconomic background because, you know, my head went for a minute because like I know, I knew your background growing up in Boston and I you know, mine, I grew up, you know, you know, fairly low, low, low middle class in the Northwest corner of Connecticut, an old factory town. And I, I think we're both guys that have chips on our shoulder, but I tell you what, I've seen a lot of people come and go and our number one SDR of all time. And she knows who she is. She grew up with a silver spoon. I mean, she grew up in a, a pretty, pretty wealthy family, but she still had that drive and she still had that chip on her shoulder and she still had. So I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a real quick story that maybe, especially for your reps out there, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this, it will help. When I first started in my career, I was at the corporate executive board. I was failing. 
in uh, in sales. There were about a hundred of us that we now would call sales development reps. Back then, they called them marketing associates. <laughs> not not kidding. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people get hired and they go, "When do we start doing graphic design?" And we're like, "No, no, you got to pick up the phone and cold call CIOs." They're like, "Huh? What?" And and uh, and then and then there were a hundred field people. And our job, you know, of course, is to get them in the door. I, yep. I, all of the, all the things I did naturally, none of it worked. <laughs> uh, I was about to go on a performance improvement plan. And if I lost that job, I had 60,000 in school loans. And, um, my backup plan was to work for my uncle Jim's septic tank business in the Northwest corner of Connecticut. Um, oh. I shit you not, you can look it up Richard septic systems. It is a company <laughs> that my grandfather started. Um, nice. and I didn't want to, I didn't want to work for my uncle Jim in the septic tank business. So I found the best people. Um, it was easy at the time. They actually had a leaderboard on the wall, good old fashioned analog, no ambition or anything like that. And, um, the top five people were my new best friends. I said that, nice. and I sat with them and I just simply sat with them with an open mind, with a blank notebook. I had a, you know, like a physically I wrote in a notebook yep. and I just sat with them and I observed and I suspended all my judgment. And what I've seen with people, with sales reps, especially when they go and they do shadowing is they, they, they critique. Right. The point of shadowing is not to be Simon Cowell and judge what the person's doing, especially if they're one of the top 5%. You shouldn't be judging anything. You should just right. simply be observing, spending your judgment and writing down what the hell they do and then go and try it. And guess what? When I tried it, I went to number one. So I was number one out of a hundred when I was probably about, I think I was probably like 85 when I was at my worst out of a hundred and they had it on the board. You couldn't hide from it. It was right there. Yeah. Right. So, so just, and then from there, that's how I, you know, got promoted in the sales and that's how I started the company and everything like that. But it, it, it's, it's just have some, on some level, the, the humility and the curiosity to understand why certain things work and suspend your judgment. Cause I tell you what, I work with a lot of companies and I, and I, and I still do this process and I observe. And when you look at what some salespeople do that are successful, you really scratch your head. But then you go, you know what? Don't question it. Just freaking do it. And you'll all make more money and everyone will be happier. Yep, just try it. And I think that, that just leads try to it. just my let's, you know, that kind of leads to my last question here before we wrap up, which is, you know, we started this with the idea of do you really even need training, right, these days? Because there's so much content out there and how much value does it bring? Let's talk about if you, you know, as an individual, as a an organization with limited resources right now, and you can't hire you, me, whoever to come in and, and quote unquote train you, right? What would your approach to training be right now? If you were starting a company, if you were start, if you had a, a leader of a sales team right now with five or six reps and you didn't have a pot to piss in, no funding and anything like that, how would you, or an individual sales rep who's just looking to improve themselves, how would you approach training yourself right now? I would do I would do exactly what you did, and then I would write down the key behaviors that I described before. What does the rep? Yeah. And I would turn that into a laminated card, so everyone walked around with it all day long, and they effectively scored calls that they heard or their own calls afterwards. I would adopt the um, the Navy fighter pilots who have the brief debrief model um, with the book Flawless Execution. I recommend you read. I've heard about where, that. You know. Yep. You brief and then you do your sales call and then you debrief. And when you debrief, everyone objectively scores the call using something called the Likert scale, which is just simply one to five. One is the behavior was not present. Five is it was excellent. Three, it was average. Four, it was good. Two, and eh, you know, it was there, but not great. And, um, and then what I would do is exactly like you talked about before, I would experiment with different, you know, methodologies, sales training concepts, tactics, tips, whatever you want to call it and identify what's working 
Um, and then once you've identified that what's working, modify your definition of what good is and get really, really consistent. Create a culture, create a coaching culture where everyone feels empowered to um, you know, help people get better. Start leading with something positive, focus on one thing at a time, have the rep self-assess first. And once that, once that culture is established and you have people that are basically peer coaching at that point, they're helping each other get better. And, and change their behavior, your job as a leader just got a hell of a lot easier. And you probably don't have to even hire a sales enablement person. The only time you really want to hire someone like you to come in or Morgan or anybody like that, actually two reasons. One is when you have no freaking idea what the best practices are and you need to hire in the language. And then number two, it's because you guys are really freaking interesting, compelling, you know, cracker jacks that when you come in there, you just get everyone all fired up and you need that. So you totally yeah. still need that role. But like you said, if you don't have a pot to piss in, you can totally do it without it. You just have to have some stick to itness and be consistent. Yeah, I think that that peer coaching thing, because I think a lot of leaders try to take it all on themselves of, oh, I gotta coach my team and I gotta do this. And you know, it's my responsibility. And if and if that's the case, it's not gonna happen because as a leader, you almost, you know, the number one the number one thing a, a sales leader should be doing on a regular basis is coaching, right? Because that's the thing that's going to uptick the team the most. But that's the time. That's the thing they spend the least amount of time doing because they they have all these other things that they're trying to accomplish, right? So um, that are being pushed down to them. Create the system. Cre- Sorry to interrupt. Create yeah. the system. You know what I mean? Once the system's there, it becomes evergreen. It becomes a self perpetuating machine. Yep. And then you have coaches and mentors internally and spawn, you know, all that stuff. So I love it. Awesome. Man. Well, Steve, I think you and I could, I, I know you and I could talk for hours on this shit. Cause uh, I, I love, I've always admired what you've been doing and in, in your drive. Uh, and even, even early on when we saw each other as competitors, I always respected you. I, I will tell you this quick story before we get off the phone, man. I, you you used to do something in trainings that I was in awe of that you even had the balls to do, which is you like even in a, like in an open forum, not even with a customer specific. Like you would say, you know, thirty people in a room from all thirty different backgrounds and thirty different companies. You'd be like, all right, I'm gonna make a cold call. Who who has a customer that they want to get into? And you would fucking light up the the speaker phone right there in like a public workshop and do a cold call. And I was just I'm like, holy shit, that dude has balls that I don't because I, I never had like, look, I'll, I'll sit down and do coaching calls with reps. But, man, you, you put it out there. And, and that's why, you know, your success is 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 evident and uh, and continued. And I wish you all the luck moving forward here. And I'm looking forward to working with you. So, awesome, John, I appreciate it. A little little secret, quick secret for that one. Nobody yeah. remembers a cold call anyway. Yeah. The cold calls are unremarkable. No one remembers it. So that's why my pulse doesn't even go up a little bit. I'm like, whatever, they won't remember. Yeah, exactly. Like what's the wor- what's the worst thing that I always tell reps, look, what's the absolute worst thing that could happen when somebody you make a cold call? They hang up on you, right? Like, oh no, right? <laughs> Just get over it. <laughs> so awesome. How can uh, how can people find out more about what you're doing over at Exec Vision and follow you and all that stuff? Tell people where to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, we run this ongoing webinar series called Call Camp. If you're listening, you should, again, this is free. Yeah. Um, and no, like, exactly. we had Morgan on. I think I think I'm going to be able to pin you down sooner or later. So what we do is we listen to real sales calls. It's Gruden Quarterback Camp for Sales. We break them down for what works, what doesn't. We have themes or topics. Our next topic, I think, is uh, ensuring uh, all the meetings you schedule stick. And then after that, we're going to do things on like connecting phrases. And you know, anyway, it's awesome. It's free. Yeah. You get people like Barrows on there, basically giving you free sales training. There's a huge library of these things, like maybe 30 of them. 
Like you're crazy if you're not tapping into this. So call camp, exec vision, call camp's the way to go for content. And my cell phone number is right on my LinkedIn. You know how many people call me selling me something? I bet very few. Almost none. You know how many people call me to buy something? Five times as many. And it's on my public LinkedIn profile. So it's unbelievable. So yeah, hit me up with a text. It's right there. Love it, Steve. Well, thanks again for coming on board, man. And uh, I wish you all the luck in the new year here. And uh, let's let's do some cool shit this year together because I think we're both moving in a similar direction, trying to up level sales uh, sales as a profession in general here. And uh, and you're killing it doing it. So I appreciate everything you do, man. Thank you, Amen. All right, everybody, you make it a great day. Hey, everybody, go out there and make somebody happy. There's too much negative shit going on in the world right now. So make somebody smile today. All right, and go make it happen. Thank you all very much. Have a great day.